You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Tuesday the 14th of February. That means it's Valentine's Day. And that means there was only one guest I could legitimately get on today, and that is the wonderful Jane Mangan. Jane, I'm not going to not going to preview what's coming on the show today. I'm just going to say Happy Valentine's Day. How are you? I'm very well. I don't know whether to have take that as a compliment or if everybody else who usually uh, regularly contributes to the show should be really, really insulted. But we'll take it. We'll roll with it. Unfortunately, this podcast isn't going to be as appetizing as maybe watching Love Actually or The Holiday. Mm. We've got some meaty topics to discuss. We do. Let me just contextualize that with Lydia's on holiday and um, and Rishi couldn't do it. My one true love. So, so you were third choice, but no offense. <laughs> no other options. Now I feel valued. <laughs> It's not true. Um, it's it is it, it, there's a, there's a bleakness to today's episode. Not not really, but there's a there's a few there's a few negative news stories. Um, there's some positivity at the end as well. But we're really sort of chewing through and um, the consistent meat that we've been dealing with of late. Um, one thing, one news piece that did emerge yesterday that we haven't touched on, which uh, Nick and and Lee didn't have a chance to touch on yesterday, is that Alaho is officially out of the Cheltenham Festival. He is out of the Ryanair. Um, we thought, Jane, that he was going to be back in time and all was going to be OK, but he's a big loss to the festival. Well, he's a big loss to his connections, but fortunately they've been able to save him because it's the headline reads that he's out of the Cheltenham Festival, but ultimately when you read uh, the reasons for it, he's lucky to be uh, still with us. Um, having worked on on Saturday last week, he, he was found to be, have become uncomfortable in his stable and while he was uh, displaying symptoms of colic it actually wasn't a colic it was an abdominal bleed found at Federal Equine Hospital where he was in critical condition for a number of days he's now no longer classified as as uh, critical but he still is at Federal Equine and you know you miss Cheltenham but when you read what actually happened to him he's lucky to be still around and what it means, Ryanair wise, is that we might just see a more competitive renewal. Well, we're almost certainly going to see a more competitive renewal. And, and some horses that might have thought, I don't fancy taking on Alaho in, in the Ryanair, might just head that way. Notably, Willie Mullins, who's well armed in the two mile department, Jane, might he just consider throwing one of those horses up in trip? Yeah, you even a horse like Oton Kalura all, all of a sudden becomes an option having been unlucky last time at Turles. But um, it's funny you say that other horses now might take on the task of the Ryanair chase and then you go to the fact that mm, Willie Mullins might reroute a few there. <laughs> you know, I'd imagine other trainers have now sat up and thought, OK, well, the Gold Cup is looking like it's wide open, but it could be quite a deep affair. Maybe we'll do that. And does Shishkin come back into the reckoning if he has a good reintroduction next time we see him. Um, it's definitely after losing its heavyweight. But if any horse was avoiding the Ryanair chase because of Alaho, a horse that they haven't seen since last spring, then you're probably not going to win the Ryanair chase anyway because that suggests a lack of confidence. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, 
I mean, this surely though, Alaho has been so good in the last two renewals that um, even though he was on his his, it was going to be his reappearance. Um, but he hadn't se- ran, and the last time we'd seen no. him was over three miles at Punchestown. This is true, where he was mightily impressive, but this mm. is true. Um, and Shishkin, fortunately, yes. fortunately, it sounds like we will see him again, and that's the big line, you know. An abdominal bleed is not uh, a tendon injury; it's not a you know a bone or a fracture. It's it's something highly unusual and the fact that they detected it on time that it didn't become something that would ultimately prove fatal is is uh commendable for everybody involved they, they obviously noticed he wasn't himself wasn't right and moved quickly so um i'm just grateful that the horse is um you know still still around and hopefully we'll be back at some stage Nikki Henson confirmed yesterday that Shishkin will go to Ascot this weekend, take on Fakir Dudri, and then probably head to the Ryanair. Wonder if Fakir Dudri will have the Ryanair on his agenda. Although it was confirmed um, by both trainer and assistant trainer that, as as expected, Aintree is his ultimate um, spring festival target. Okay, that's the Alaho news done and dusted. Uh, we discussed on the podcast yesterday, Nick and Lee did the Home of Scott news that came out in the Irish Independent on Sunday. Just a frightening read from start to finish. Um, what did you want to add to what the team said yesterday, Jane? Uh, not a lot. I, 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 like everyone else, it was it made for horrific reading. Um, I would say it sounds to me like the IHRB having Homer having handed in his licence uh, to the IHRB that they've almost washed their hands of the case and handed the responsibility of sanctioning um, said person over to the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine, that it's no longer their issue. But I would say a man who's been licensed by the regulatory body for upwards of 40, 50 years, a person who has been blatantly breaking the rules um, and been seriously neglecting horses while holding a license, I would say, is it enough to just say you've handed over your license? Thank you very much. Good luck. Um, when we had last week had a case of a person being disqualified for a significant period of time. So disqualification, meaning that they cannot operate within the industry. That for me doesn't sound sufficient. I don't think uh, it goes far enough but I'm sure there's another chapter of the story to be written. Um, but I don't think it's enough for the OHRB to wash their hands of it at this stage. This is Ronan McNally, who you, who you referenced, who received a 12-year ban. And, and effectively, you're reading into the, the Homer Scott news as it is at the moment, is that he, he, he cannot train horses, he doesn't hold a licence, but if he wanted to still work around horses in, in the industry, he can. Whereas your comparison to Ronan McNally, uh, as, as somebody who's been um, found guilty of something very different. He, he he can't work in any way in the industry. Yeah, exactly. And and you can you can say it's not like for like. One is a welfare issue and, and one is um, a completely different issue. But I would I would contest that both in their own in their own way are, are pretty terrible. And I would say that if you are neglecting animals to the point where they die, I don't see why you should be allowed to continue active in the industry yeah i contest that actually as far as still working somewhere in the industry the the welfare grounds is um even more reason to to be completely disqualified anyway 
Um, we come on to the the whip, which uh, again was touched on yesterday. It was touched on the day before that, the day before that. But this is where we are. Um, obviously, it was the the first day yesterday, trial period over, first day officially where um, the the new rules come into effect and the new bans can be incurred. I wanted to just touch on um, Sam Ewing's comments, Jane, which I, I thought were were quite interesting. He rode. Uh, crossing the bar to success at Plumpton for, for Neil Mulholland. He said, it plays on your mind big time. I gave the horse two flicks in that race. This is in the, the racing post. And I was very careful that I wasn't going above head height or striking him in the wrong place. I didn't even raise the whip in my forehand position as I was just overcautious. What do you make of that? That's exactly what the BHA want. That is the desired effect of the new rules. Everything he said there is positive. I, I agree. I, I think that well, that's not just what the, the, the yes, that is what the BHA want, but I, I think that's um, I think we should be looking at that pretty positively. Um, that that is as far as when we're dealing with perception. Well, the jockey, whilst they may not wish to be thinking about this, whilst whilst riding a finish, um, that that ticks all those perception boxes. Really thinking about what what he or she is doing, and therefore what it looks like while doing that. Yes, and Sam's very young and he's, I think, in his late teens. And he, if he's going to have uh, 20 years in the saddle, then starting off in this frame of mind is a positive for him. But there's no excuse for anybody else that they'd have to play by those rules. But Tom, can we bring our, our attention back to the whip review committee process? Please do. Um, it's It sounds a little bit heavy, but we're going to break it very, very, make it very, very simple. There's a process of nine steps. Um, all potential offences will be referred to the whip review committee, including disqualification, so that no jockey will be found in breach of any rules on race day. I have an issue with this. I think this this reads pretty uh, elementary. Any breaches of the whip rules will be first published by the whip review committee following their weekly meeting. Their weekly meeting will be in most cases on a Tuesday. Okay, so they're they're going to take control of this. For me, this exemplifies a lack of trust or a lack of confidence in the race day stewards. Can they not be trusted to count? Do they not have eyes to see? And why delay the inevitable when? Everybody sitting at home can see if the rules are broken or not. So if somebody like a jockey breaks a rule on a Wednesday, say, for instance, and they ride every day until the following Tuesday, but they don't get notified of their sanction until the following Tuesday, the chances are they're going to have more than one by the time the next week comes around because they won't have been given the slap on the wrist. That is what essentially a ban is. Um. I think it's undermining the race day stewards. And if you can't trust them to count or to see these rules, how can you trust them to do anything else? See, I, I absolutely take this point. And I, to be honest, I don't have such an issue. If we take just disqualification out of it, I don't have such an issue with the, with it not being in the hands of the race day stewards. Um, although now there is no discretion whatsoever I agree that if it if it, it should be black and white. If it we're is black gonna, and white, we're going to get onto colours of takeoff boards in a minute. But this should be black and white. But my main issue, Jane, centres around disqualifications. Now, the, from a broadcaster's point of view, 
just uh, you and I are a working Gold Cup day, let's say. Well, we are, but well, hopefully. But let's say the the winner of the Gold Cup, we can clearly see that the rider on the winner of the Gold Cup uses the stick over four times more than he's allowed to. So we know, and we can clearly see it, and we've counted, and there's people on social media counting, and we're saying this horse is going to be disqualified because those are the rules. But unfortunately, we have to then interview the winning rider as the Gold Cup winner, interview the winning trainer as the Gold Cup winner, perhaps floating ideas of possible disqualification. The Gold Cup will be presented to those connections. And then only for the following week, the inevitable to happen. That That's my huge concern as to as to how that looks as an industry. I, I, I mean, I hope it doesn't come to that. Maybe we will have no disqualifications. But if it happens on the biggest stage of all, that's going to be hugely unsatisfactory for all broadcasters, for the sport as a whole. Yeah, so for anybody who isn't uh, familiar with the actual numbers, so if a jockey hits in in a National Hunt race uh, 11 times or more, so four times over the seven, or on the flat it'll be six times, so if you go 10 or over, um, you'll face disqualification. And it's purely for betting companies. That's That's the only explanation I can see. And you're absolutely right. This is an open goal waiting for a disaster to happen. And we're we're allowing it to happen by the sounds of it because nobody seems to be putting up much of a fight against it. I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it'll be a complete shambles if it does happen and it wouldn't have to be a gold cup or a grand national. Any day would be an, an embarrassment. It's, it's, it's an open goal an absolute, you know, it, it, it would just be madness if that happened. I think that and you, I... and, and you get paid out. For instance, you back the second horse, gets beaten ahead. Um, you don't get paid out and, and the perpetrator wins and gets paid out. It just rewards it rewards what what you shouldn't be rewarding. I think the, the, the bookmakers would argue that, that this is this is more for the punters. Um and I appreciate they, they want and, and and need some sort of clarity on the day, but we rely on a steward's inquiry now <clears throat> to hopefully be resolved as quickly as possible to give us some clarity on the day. But apparently we can't trust our stewards to make a call anyway. So maybe that's another um, undermining of their authority. Moving on to orange to white. Now, this is largely something that had um, gone pretty seamlessly and been brought into the British programme. Um, I, I didn't see too many negative comments about it at the start of the season. Um, obviously, some you know, plenty of British horses had, had a chance to school over them at home and were used to it when coming to the track. The issue really has come to the fore, Jane, with, with Irish horses coming over. Um, we heard it mentioned by Willie Mullins re- regarding Energumen and his disappointing run at Cheltenham. For all, he, he didn't solely blame that. Um, Dara O'Keefe has, has since come out and, and spoken about Hemlock, who was sent off 2-1 to favourite for the Scottish Stairs Novices Hurdle last weekend and crashed out and, and sadly lost his life at the, at the third last. And he said he jumped carefully at every obstacle and it, and it was due to the the fact that they are now white and, and, and no longer orange. How does this sit with you, Jane? Well, orange is not the new black in this instance, is it? Um, it's a case of there should probably be a bit more communication between the two jurisdictions and there needs to just be... Um, there there needs to be preparation in terms of an Irish horse going over. They need to have seen it and jumped over white um, painted obstacles because this is a, a study has been done 
Um, it's a scientific based adjustment. Um, they've made that decision. It's not the, the UK are not the first country to race uh, with white boards. Ger- Germany do it. Um, Czech Republic do it. But I would say any Irish horse going to Cheltenham will have schooled over white takeoff boards before they go. It'll just be something that we have to adjust to a little bit like the jockeys having to adjust to the stick. I think it's around to stay. And I'm sure it would be appreciated if Cheltenham were to have uh, schooling fences or hurdle. They always have a schooling fence or a hurdle in the middle of the track for the Irish to practice over anyway on Cheltenham week with said white takeoff boards. Um, But I think Irish trainers traveling across will have school them before they leave here. That'll just be something they'll have to do and get used to, I'm afraid. Mm. I mean, there's an argument, isn't there, that if you're going to, we're going to hear from Richard Kingsgate in a, in, in a minute, uh, who's done an interview with Nick about him riding and in the in the States and having to adapt. There's an argument to say that Irish trainers, they've known about this since the start of the season and and they if they haven't schooled their horses over, over white obstacles at home, I know that takes um, a bit of a change at home, but then, you know, they've known about it for long enough to to have had the chance to do that, no? Yeah, well, maybe it's a case of we, we should adjust to having the same uh, white takeoff boards at our racetracks. And I'm sure that's a question that's being asked uh, at a higher level than you and I. But if we're going to encourage uh, cross-channel competition, there needs to be a certain cohesiveness with the basic uh, elements of racing and this is a very basic thing that makes an absolutely huge difference and could have a huge detrimental effect if horses didn't adapt um, when they do cross the water so I'd say this is something that in Ireland they'll have to review with a view to maybe making the change as well because it's not something that was made in a on a whim There's all, it's all well and good pointing out the fact that we've had a faller a horse has lost its life. Um, jockey's not happy, but ultimately we we know crossing the water what the fences and hurdles are going to look like now. So maybe we just need to adjust. Well, Mike Etherton Smith joins me now. He's who is the equine safety advisor to the Horse Welfare Board. Um, Mike, thanks ever so much for your time. If you can, um, before we even get on to orange to white, just just give us an idea of your your background, your knowledge of horses. Gosh. Um, right, I'll keep it really quick. I used to ride professionally, eventing and jumping for quite a few years, then realised that I was getting a bit old and wife of young children. I thought it was asking that they'd probably be better to move on to a different direction. So I then got involved in the administrative side of the sport and largely, I suppose, best known for designing cross country courses over the world uh, for well, four years in my case to imagine. I suppose the first international major international event I designed was in, in the mid-1980s, so I've been going a long time, and that's in, included you know, a couple of games, World Championships, several European Championships and things, so, and then, then I've also been doing, there's a, the FEI, the International Equestrian Federation, has a risk management steering group, which I was, you know, in, involved in setting up, and I served on that for a long time, so I've been doing risk management and risk mitigation and eventing for 20 plus years, I guess. Um, and so when I was asked to, to take on the role I've got now, um, actually it's exactly the same principles, it's the same thought process, it's the same issues in eventing as, as in, in in racing, um, racing just has, happens to have a higher profile. But it's so it's, it's, it's quite a, as I say, seamless transition 
and um, it's, it's as I say the, the demographics and the, the people in, in the sport uh, massive crossover I've known about racing I've been involved with racing I did the um, I designed the original cross country course, the cross country course at Chapman for example all those years ago uh, so I've you know, had an interest in racing so it's not a completely alien, alien sport to me well, that was going to be my next question as to, to, to how much crossover there there is, in particular when it comes to equine safety and, and equine welfare. You're still looking at the fundamentals of keeping horses as safe as possible, whatever discipline they're doing. Totally. I mean, what we're doing, I mean, if you look at this Orange to White, for example, you know, that was based on research uh, undertaken by Exeter University at the behest of the BHA, supported by the Racing Foundation. And that was done in 2018. And... and when the industry made the decision, actually, would be a good thing to move over to to white from orange um, shortly before COVID. Then COVID came in and the whole thing stalled. But I mean, it's, it's based on research carried out by its university, and it's, it's now known that horses see colours differently to, to how we see them. They see diplomatically, and I'm not good on big words, um, but they definitely see a different range of colours to us. And it was established. And this is based on facts. It was established that they see certain colours, like white, fluorescent yellow, and light blue, much, much better than any other colours. They also see in contrast. And so, for example, the orange, whether it's a deep orange or a regular orange, they don't pick out as well as white or fluorescent yellow or light blue against the background. Um, and you imagine a dark, dingy day uh, towards the end of the day, winter's day, a bit gloomy, and... Um, you know, to help the horses do what we're asking them to do, which is what this is all about, it makes complete sense to to move to white from orange, given that the research has been done. You know, it's not just randomly plucked out of the air as, as somebody thinking it's a good idea. And let's face it, they've been racing in France for over white for many, many years. The cross-country track in Cheltenham that I did, that, that involved white, and that's been there for 25-plus years. So it's not new. And the work I've done in inventing... And, and show jumping, I mean, sort of, um, you know, we have to understand colour. The use of colour is really, really important to, to help horses. And we have to be mindful of the background and what colours horses read well and which ones they don't read so well. So it's, it's all involved in this whole jigsaw. Now, obviously, this is, it feels as though it's come to like more, rather than a pretty seamless transition at the start of the season, it, it, it's sort of hit the news again with Irish runners coming over. I mean, is it... Is it fair to assume that that a horse jumping the white fences for the first time would react differently because of the fact that they can effectively see more, and in an ideal world they will not be jumping them for the first time in race conditions? Is that is that a recommendation, or is that right? Yeah, I mean, over the years I've, I've done many, many young horses, and they do vary in how they react to, to different colours. I mean, for example, if you if you're jumping a horse over different coloured fillers, you know, they might split at one, they won't split at another. But it would make complete sense. I mean, like, you know, if I put my horse training hat on, not racehorse trainer, you know, I, I would find it surprising, let's say, if, if people send horses to races if they never jumped, white, jumped over white to start with because you think, well, it's a pretty obvious thing to do. Because, again, come back to it, you know, we're trying to help the horse do what we're asking them to do. And, you know, so... And it's, it's also this is a closely kept secret. It's been around for a while. So it was announced, gosh, eighteen months ago, I suppose. This change, and you know, we consulted with all the stakeholders. We had a working group with stakeholder representation on massive amount of work done with with all the various stakeholder groups. 
So it was well known that this was coming in. That's not for me to tell trainers how to do their jobs. I made that clear at the outset. But I'm surprised if they send a horse to a race meeting and they know it's going to be white, if they have jumped on the white obstacles. Logic would say you would do it first. Um, I, I suppose when, when we make changes like this, um, whether they've worked is measured on on statistics, on numbers, on, on figures. And I'm sure that, you know, that all, all faller rates, etc., are being logged um, since we moved to white. Is there a time, Mike, when we can expect to see, um, you know, whether or not this has is, this is had a positive effect? Yes, I mean, you know, it's a big, depends who you talk to, I'm not a data analyst. I mean, a data analyst will tell you you need three to five years to be able to make a meaningful comparison. We're obviously monitoring it, and you have to say that at this stage, although it's cost you to make any meaningful comparison, you know, the figures are looking quite good. But it's, um, uh, but in terms of fallers, I mean, one really, really important thing about this is that nobody's claiming that white is going to prevent fallers. It will, what we're hoping, the, the message here is it will help reduce the possibility of fallers because fences, the obstacles, will become clearer to the horses. So there's, there's no silver bullet here. Um, nobody's claiming it's going to, to to be a magic solution to anything because, it, as we all know, it's a massive jigsaw. You know, if, if, you're, if you're putting a jigsaw together, there's so many pieces that need to come together to make a picture. It doesn't matter whether you're producing something like this to reduce falls, which is what we all want to do, um, or you're making a cake, making a pancake, whatever. You know, there are all sorts of ingredients that go into it. But I think that's, you know, when coming back to your point just now, you know, with the young horses, some young horses will have a bit of a look or the first time they see a, see a white hurdle or, or whatever, they maybe have a bit of a look and jump in a little bit bigger than they would, you know, maybe once they've jumped a few times. And that's to be expected. I mean, that's horses. Um, you know, we've, we've all been lucky enough to work with fantastic animals. And, um, you know, we have a duty of care for them. So I think that's, you know, it's, for me, it's a positive step. And, um, you know, the industry's been great. The race course has been great. They've made big changes. The inspectors, of course, have overseen the changes. They've done a fantastic job. And, and you know, the feedback that we're getting is, is, is broadly positive. You know, the ones who negative comments tend to make, the, to make the headlines. But, you know, I come back to it. What we're trying to do here, based on evidence, is actually help horses do what we're asking them to do. And I, for me, I, I don't see an argument with that. I don't see how you can argue with it. Mike, really appreciate your time. Thanks ever so much. Tom, thank you. Good to chat. All right, news from the Nick Luck Charity Auction now. Those four stallions and the nominations to them are are online. Um, Current bid for Stradivarius, eight grand. Golden Horn, 8,500. Ardad's up to 11 grand. And as you know, we added Starman yesterday. Stands at Tally Ho Stud. Uh, Starman, the winner of five races, earned just under 500 grand's worth of prize money. And retired as a top-rated sprinter in Europe, he was crowned the Cartier Champion Sprinter of 2021. Oodles of speed, bundles of class, and get your bid in online for the Nick Luck Charity Auction. Which brings us on to uh, some news from from Coolmore uh, regarding international aid and the earthquake appeal. Jane, 
Yes, so there is an online sale, to, or the February sale today at Arcana. There's been a supplementary lot. Lot 70 will be a service to Camelot in support of the humanitarian aid deployed to those affected by the earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria earlier this month. Coolmore has donated a stallion cover of the classic winner, Camelot. The cover will be offered Today, uh, February 14th, as Lot 70 at Arcana, and all proceeds will be donated to the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, the covering to the Derby Hero can be used in 2023 or carried over to 2024 if there is no live fall from the 2023 service. Well, it might be a centre box, but that doesn't mean you can't conduct an interview from the top of a water slide. Here's Nick. Well, as you know on the pod, we've been following Richard Kingscote's exploits over the last few weeks uh, nipped off to Florida for a, a bit of a working holiday, and it yielded a victory on, on a, a horse on the dirt trained by Bill Mott called Arthur's Ride on Richard's final day on Saturday evening, and and he joins me now. How's how's the whole experience been, Richard? Yeah, it's all been very positive. I've really enjoyed my time here. It's a lovely part of the world. I've been well looked after, and you know, it's ticked all the boxes of me wanting to come out here. Uh, to what extent was it a bit of a culture shock when you when you first went out and and trying to get your face known and and get some get some half decent rides? Yeah, I mean it has. You know, I've started from scratch, not knowing anybody, and them not knowing me, and everything's new. From you know the way the horses are ridden, from the sticks we use, the reins. So it's been a whole new learning curve, and but you know I've actually. I've enjoyed the lifestyle. I've enjoyed the break, and I've enjoyed the riding as well. And I, I always thought that that you'd you'd adapt pretty well to the American style because you you're a kind of forward thinking, forward going rider. And have you enjoyed that side of it, that the pace side of racing in the in the US? Yeah, I've enjoyed the gate work. Um, as you know, I do like a bit of um, stalls and. Um, Fortunately, I've been. I think I've managed pretty well to adapt how how it all works, and got plenty of them out of the gates nicely. You know, it's not. There've been very few that have fell out the back of the stalls on, and um, I think it's been. I think it's been a, a really good experience. And how important was it to get that to get that winner under your belt, and particularly for a, a you know Hall of Fame trainer like Bill Mott on on the dirt as well, not not on the turf. Yeah, I think I think um, I think from the outside looking in, it would be it, it seemed important to have a winner on the board while I'm here. Um, I think for me, I mean, after a couple of weeks, I really wasn't expecting to get a winner. It's so difficult to get on anything that has half a chance, and I just landed on a plum ride yesterday, and he was a nice horse and for a, a top yard, and luckily got got a winner. And it it looked it looked pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean he had the form, you know, he ran ran to a good level his first couple of starts, and he gave me a great ride. He hit the lids, you know, um, just made all on the dirt. You know, it was only my second ride on the dirt, so it was nice to keep clean. <laughs> I bet it was. Um, I know, I know you you're not exactly trying to reinvent yourself, and you're coming off the back of a tremendous season in in England and you're sort of dipping your toe in really but has it given you food for thought about how to spend winters in the future? Yeah I think it's nice to mix things up a little bit um I think I've enjoyed it more here than I 
possibly expected I would have. Um, I think I've enjoyed not not traveling. I mean, I love I love being at home, but this has definitely opened some doors. I think and first racing and um, Aiden Butler have been great, and you know, hopefully, hopefully it's something we can do more of. I know we talked a little bit about about maybe California next year. Is that a is that is that on the agenda? Uh, yeah, I think Santa Anita next year might be good, um, and um, then you know, see where we're at. If we enjoy that more than I like it here, then maybe I'll see if I can go. You know, keep going in winters. I, like I say, I've really enjoyed it. The wife's here; she's she's enjoying it as well. So you know, there's lots of positives, and you know, I'm in great shape. My my body's in the best shape I've been in in a good while. And um, as I said to you before, I came out. That was that was one of my main goals was to to get light and you know i'm waking up eight seven eight sixes now so i've accomplished what i wanted to do and and if there was one thing that's that's taken you by surprise pleasantly or otherwise from this trip what would it be um i think the everything's catered to make life easier for everybody whether it's the punters or the participants um everything is quite laid back and everything's easier for the punter it's all very i don't know everything's marked out you know like wife said you can follow the racing much easier easier to get a bet on for the punters for the jockeys you know everything is on site great facilities and it seems like everyone's working together rather than everyone working against each other um so i mean that's you know that's a bit different i think well richard i'm, I'm glad it's been a positive experience for you um and best of luck uh, for the next for the next step on the journey thank you very much well it's tuesday so it's time to go around the bloodstock world with weatherbees this weekend it is a big meeting in in Qatar, the amir sword festival and that is where we go for this Bloodstock segments, Weatherby's Stu Plenty with the Qatar Racing and Equestrian Club, uh, producing race cards, Studbook Admin System, the, the Horseman's Guide. They also produce the official Amir Sword magazine, The Winning Circle, which I promise we will come to because it's what enabled me, me to do most of my research into this a week's guest. Um, that is Mohammed Hamad Khalifa Al Atiyah, who is a, a licensed trainer, had plenty of success. Uh, in recent years back home, um, but also part of a huge family operation there and part of the very successful Algerian stud. Mohammed, welcome along and, and thanks for joining me. Um, before we come on to, to your operation, Mohammed, just give me an idea, if you can, as to how important a weekend this weekend is in the Qatar racing programme. Yeah, uh, so basically this is the most important uh, weekend of the season. Everyone works towards this meeting, you know, so, um, you know, any, any, any race in this meeting would mean a lot for someone to win, especially uh, the races in the final day, which will be on Saturday. They're like the most important ones, but... Generally, the whole meeting is very important, and I think everyone like we would enjoy winning any race in this meeting. It would mean something. Mm. 
Um, what chances do, do you and your team have over the three days? I think we have some nice chances. Uh, like, we have three runners on Thursday. They have, like, a, like a small chance, I'd say, of running one. On Thursdays, on, on Friday, sorry, it's where I'll be busier. I'll have maybe nine runners. And I think some of them do have a chance, especially, in, let's say, the... <coughs> The last race, the feature race, the Arrayan Breeders' Cup. Uh, I have three runs in this race. Uh, Al-Barak is good. Uh, he has a chance of running a good race. And the other two are also uh, good enough to maybe play for this race. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping that, like, uh, generally all the horses run well. And, you know, we'll be pleased if they do. Now, one thing that, that struck me in your interview with Sally Duckett, the commissioning editor of the uh, Winning Circle, uh, Amir Sword magazine, was um, how you're, you're really part of, a, of such a family operation back home, a successful family operation between running horses, training horses, and, and also having a stud there. Uh, how, how important is the family side of things to you, Mohammed? It's uh, Actually, we, we enjoy doing it, you know, it's, uh, we, we, we breed the horses ourselves, you know, we, I train them here, so, you know, it means a lot when, when we get a nice one, you know, when we get a good horse, and especially running them in, in a big meeting like the Amir's uh, Sword Festival, you know, it, it, it feels different, you know, it feels, feels really good to have some good horses that you buy yourself, and, you know, so that's how it is. The other thing that came across is, um, of course, you, you own the, the hugely successful stallion Al-Bahar who stands in France, but your um, your relationship with France, particularly with the Arabian horses, seems seems very important. How did that come about? France, uh, you know, they, they have plenty of Arabian racing over there, so it was important for Al-Bahar to stand in France so, you know, uh, he would get the best chance to cover a good number of mares and, you know, to, to give him the best chance to succeed. And thankfully, with uh, their co- cooperation with Harat the Ditwans, uh, you know, it, it worked out very well. And what did you like about Al-Bahar? What, what led to the family purchasing him? Yeah, I'd say, you know, he's a son of uh, Amr, who is arguably like the best Arabian stallion ever. And the thing that makes him different than all the other Amr uh, uh, stallions is his, uh, from his damn side. You know, he, he's a total, like, uh, he's an outcross for all the French prisoners, you know, the French, the American, and all of them. So we thought, you know, he'd, he, he'd be a good match for the, for, for, for the good French bloodline. And... Uh, uh, it worked out really well. You know, he's doing very well. With that. Obviously, Qatar has a, a great relationship with um, with Paris Longchamp, um, supporting the 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 Arc meeting. They they support um, the the Qatar Goodwood Festival as well, where we've seen a, a growing number of of purebred Arabian races over here uh, and in Europe. Uh, it seemed as though that was something that 
is very close to to the Qataris, Arabian racing, Arabian breeding, and looking to to grow the scene, which is obviously happening in Europe. Yeah, we've always uh, like uh, historically, uh, we've always had Arabian horses, you know. So Arabian horses were, were always important to us and to even our neighboring countries as well. So we all like we always had races for Arabians and. You know, obviously when Qatar started to sponsor the, the races in France and uh, Glorious Goodwood as well in the UK, they, you know, they added, uh, in Goodwood, they, they, they have now an Arabian race over Amayim, which is very valuable. And in France, you know, they, they, since they sponsored uh, even the racing in France, they, they, you know, I, I, I believe that was the reason that the Arabian racing over there has, you know, progressed and doing well at the moment. But France has always also had uh, a very good race. You know, so. mm. And as far as your operation at home, Mohammed, do you, what sort of a, amount of thoroughbreds to Arabians do you have that you train? Yeah, I'd say the horses in training would be around maybe 40. Maybe 40 horses. Yeah. Yeah. Around that, maybe a bit up or down. Uh, I'm not thinking really of Training a bigger number because you know I, I like just to have the, the, the nice the nice horses you know the ones that can run in, in the good meetings you know so I, I like to keep it controlled I think <laughs> and and from covering personally the the meetings in um, in the Middle East and, and seeing Arabians and Arabian races on on cards with thoroughbreds it always strikes me that. Well, the most obvious thing, I suppose, is we see the Arabians when they're a little bit older. Um, they can be a little quirkier, but not always. What What are the main differences do, do you find to training an Arabian compared to a thoroughbred? I I think everyone will have maybe a different opinion in, in this matter, but I think that when it comes to the, to the training side, you know, I think the idea is still the same. I, I don't really do things really differently with, our, with Arabians and Talbots. It's not, so for me, that's just a personal opinion. I don't, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you're training race horses. So, you know, the, like, the training would more or less be the same, but, uh, you know, Arabians can be quirky, as you said. Uh, but you know that's something uh, you know that that will always be there. But I, I think if we're, if we're talking about the training side, I you know that's just my opinion. I, I do things more or less the same. You know, mm. I don't really. Yeah. Tell me about a Sahab who's been hugely successful of late. Sahab, yes, she's owned by my cousin. Uh, and uh, yeah, she's she's been a good study for them. She she's by AF and Bahar, who's our stallion, so it's also good to, to see him do so well. And he's obviously been um, hugely successful. I recognise the names like uh, Mahmoon from from my time in in Dubai. Um, he's he's a, he's a very versatile stallion, right? Yeah, uh, I say you know. 
uh, most people will agree uh, that uh, most of the stock has plenty of speed, so they're they're like sprinters, milers, but he still can get you like ten furlong horses, you know, or more maybe. But most of them are like good sprinters and milers. And what's the ambition, Mohammed, for, for, for your stud, for Algerian stud? What, what does the future look like? Well, you know, uh, I, I'm enjoying training my own horses, so I think you know, I'll, I'll stick to this for a, for a long time. And from the breeding side, I'd say, you know, we always aim to, to breed the best uh, horses uh, we can, you know, so that's... That's the aim, is to breed horses that can, you know, uh, I'd say breed horses who can represent us in the top races. And when it comes to you, to you purchasing horses, say coming to, to Europe and buying horses, obviously we know how competitive it is at the moment. What are, what are, you, what are you looking for? What are you able to get your hands on? I think when it comes to Arabian, uh, it might be a bit more difficult to buy a, a very good horse because you know there, there, uh, like there's not many of them around, and most of the top uh, brood mares are owned by the big studs, so you know they want uh, they they want some the, the, the good horses they have. So I think with Arabian. If, if you're looking to to, to to have some good horses and you want uh, to, to keep having some horses every year, I think you're better off buying a, 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 like a, a good number of mares. They don't need to be a huge number. And, you know, just try to breed them. I, I think that way it works out better. But you could still buy uh, some, you know, who, are, who have raced a couple of times and are open to, like, progress. That's uh, that, that's my opinion when it comes to Arabian. And for thoroughbreds, obviously, as you all know, you know the, the horses. There are many horses in training sales, so you know you have a lot of options. Mm. But it's but it's hard, right? It's competitive. There's lots of different racing jurisdictions yeah, so, over the world wanting uh, same same the same horses. Exactly. You know, uh, the good horses will always be difficult to buy because you know there's interest from. Hong Kong, Australia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, so America as well. So it's uh, you know it's not easy to buy the good horses who pass the vetting. And I, I, again, in, in the interview with Sally, you, you can buy a, a mare in foal and, and and race the offspring as a locally bred horse, right? Yes, we have we have races in Qatar for local thoroughbreds. That's basically for uh, thoroughbreds who are bred in Qatar. So uh, there are a couple of stallions in Qatar here where some people like uh, breed to them, but I I prefer to buy the mares in fall to to some like good race horses in Europe and get get them to fall in, in Qatar, and in this way they're uh, they are eligible to run in the local thoroughbred races, and I've been I I'd say I've been successful with this. That seems like a pretty pretty smart way of operating, definitely. Um, listen, I, I really appreciate your time, and, and that's been very enlightening. I, I wish you all the best with 
the future of Algerian stud. But most importantly, good luck this weekend. Enjoy it. Thank you very much, and it has been a pleasure to talk to you. And just a tip from you, please, Jane, this Valentine's Day. To end Valentine's Day, uh, you know, after Lydia and uh, Rishi turned you down, uh, Lingfield 230, the novices hurdle, tell me something good. Well, tell me something good might be good. Tizard and Powell team up with the brother to invitation only, who had a very promising run at Kempton back in November on debut. Hopefully can go one better on its second start in the 230 at Lingfield. Dave Yates will be in on Thursday. He couldn't do today either. Jane, you're the best. A pleasure as always. Oh, oh. I don't know what to tell you. Happy Valentine's Day, Tom. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, thanks very much to Jane Mangan. You got me all week, everyone. Uh, apologies for that. I will be back tomorrow. That was Tuesday, the 14th of February. Bye-bye. <laughs> You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.